chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are plain fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us have no self-conceit, no provoking of one another, no envy of one another. God never urges himself to be good. Edward John Carnell wrote that in a book called Christian Commitment that I read on vacation. God never urges himself to be good. And the reason is because he is good from the root to the branch. His nature always inclines him irresistibly to do what is right. There are no conflicting evil motives in God's heart that have to be beat down in order to do what's right. Nobody ever has to remind God of his duty. Nobody ever has to say to God one morning, Now today, God, mind your manners. Today, God, you must remember to avoid evil. Today, God, remember the Ten Commandments and keep them. It would be an insult. The reason is because he is good. Goodness and righteousness pour forth from the heart of God like fruit grows on a tree. Only those who are evil need to be told to do good, which means that Galatians chapter 5, indeed the rest of the whole New Testament, is a standing reminder of my moral depravity and yours. God never urges himself to be righteous and never ceases to urge me to be righteous. He testifies continually, therefore, in his word that I am not good. The root of my tree is not a perfect root. Do you ask yourself, do a little test, spontaneously, consistently, And naturally, humble yourselves and serve others joyfully. Do you have attitudes and actions 
that pour forth from you as naturally as light and heat are pouring forth from that sun? You know you don't. And I know I don't. And God knows we don't. And therefore, we are the sort who must be told, be good. We are the sort who need a long list of vices that will keep us out of the kingdom. And a long list of virtues that fulfill the law. We need that, you and I. But there's a danger here in Galatians 5, 19 to 23, isn't there? There's a danger when you take a morally depraved human and present them with a list of don'ts and do's. And if you've been tracking with me in Galatians for the last five months, you'll know what that danger is. It's the danger of law. It's the danger that instead of letting those lists be a impetus to cause us to seek transformation at the root so that our depravity is transformed, we will instead use those very lists as expressions of our depravity. For example, if our problem is that we are proud and self-sufficient people, and along comes a moral authority, like the Apostle Paul, and says, faithfulness and kindness are virtuous and admirable qualities. We might say, hmm, why I will now train myself through discipline and self-denial to learn to do acts of kindness and keep all my promises that I may now be admirable and worthy and God will accept me and I will have the praise of noble people. And if that's our response to the lists They have not delivered us at all from our depravity, but only compounded it because now we have prostituted the word of God and used it to satisfy our own evil desires for pride and self-sufficiency. Well, Paul is very, very aware of this danger. He is so keenly aware that the Bible can be taken and twisted into legalism. He knew it happened in the law. And he knows it can happen in the gospel. And so he erects at least four roadblocks in his teaching to keep us from doing that to his teaching. And I want to tell you what those four are and then look at one or two of them in some detail. Number one, he calls the list of his vices works of the flesh, and he calls the list of his virtues fruit of the Spirit. That's important. And we're going to come back and ask why he distinguishes them as works and fruit. Second, in verse 24, he says that the basis of doing right and not doing wrong is that the root of wrong has died. If you believe that, if that's a true thing, you never will fall prey to legalism. 
The flesh is crucified. It can no longer reach up, take love, twist it into legalism. Its arm has been cut off. Third, in verse 25, when Paul finally gets around to making a command to giving an imperative, he tells us to do something not by our strength, but by the strength of the Spirit. And you see, he cuts the nerve of boasting when he does that because he keeps us from taking a virtue, plying our willpower, achieving some measure of success, and then boasting in it. You can't do that if you're being carried in a stretcher by the Spirit. If you're living according to the Spirit or in the power of the Spirit, all boasting is gone. Fourth, and finally, in verse 26, Paul's command is not primarily addressed to an outward act, but to an inward attitude. Let us have no self-conceit or no vain glory. That is, don't be driven from within by the lust for power and praise from men. Now, I think those four uh, devices are roadblocks to keep us from taking the moral teaching of the New Testament and turning it into something in which we can boast, legalism or debauchery. I hope that just from that little survey, you can see the, the uh, Grand Canyon separation between biblical ethical teaching and popular American morality teaching. The Bible takes very, very seriously the root of depravity in every human heart. And the solution that the Bible offers is a radical encounter with a supernatural being called new birth at the beginning and sanctification in the process of its completion. Now what verse 25 means, if we live by the Spirit, that is, if we were born again by the power of the Spirit, let's get on in life, not in our own power, but in the power of the same Spirit who brought us to life in the first place. Popular American morality, on the other hand, has an astonishingly naive view of our own human corruption. In fact, the most lamentable thing about popular morality is that our pride is turned into a virtue most of the time. God is an option. Or better, God is a traditional value to be preserved, but God is never a desperately needed Savior from the depravity of our own heart. Never. We'll find that in any self-improvement book. I want Bethlehem to be a church where we don't think like the world thinks. We think the way the Bible thinks. We have the mind of Christ and don't follow the strivings after virtue the way contemporary moralists do, but the way the Apostle Paul taught us to do in this passage. So, let's go back and in the time we have, look at maybe two of these roadblocks where Paul tries his best to keep us from turning biblical ethical teaching into contemporary American self-improvement programs.
First, he calls the vices in verses 19 to 21 works of the flesh and the virtues in verses 22 to 23 fruit of the spirit. Now, before we ask why, let's redefine flesh. It is not, I've said it half a dozen times, it is not your body, right? Because you can look at this list and see where these sins are coming from. Strife, enmity, jealousy, anger, envy, those don't come from your body. They come from your heart, from your mind. And therefore, we dare not define the flesh, which is the root of all of these sins, as the body. It manages to co-opt the body for plenty of help, but it is not the body, as though the body were the source of all of our sin. It isn't. Here's what the flesh is, and this is just review for those of you who've been in on Galatians. The flesh is the old ego, the self-reliant ego that does not delight to yield to any authority, especially God's but rather delights in and craves the praise of men and the sensation of self-generated power. That's the flesh. It has a conservative form. That's what Galatians has been most concerned with. When conservatives give free reign to the flesh, they don't commit gross sins. They get legalistic and become Judaizers and boast and toot horns before they give their alms. When libertarians, or whatever name you want to give to them at the other end of the spectrum, let the flesh have free reign, they flaunt their individuality and pride by gross and blatant immorality. And Paul opens the lens of the word onto the flesh here in verses 19 to 21, to let us see some of that. Sexual immorality, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, which incidentally, more precisely, would be the use of drugs and witchcraft. And I think today Paul might just broaden out and use a few other words here about alcohol and drugs. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger. These are the ways that the flesh can let itself go when it is in a kind of person who hasn't had the so-called benefit of nice, solid, moralistic upbringing. So there are two ways the flesh can express itself. It can express itself very subtly in the self-exaltation that comes through virtue in which we may boast and pride ourselves, or it may come out flagrantly in the offense against commonly accepted morality. I said a couple of years ago, you remember when I was talking about the problem of legalism, that the reason that the students of the University of Munich take off their clothes and lie around nude in English gardens is exactly the same reason the Pharisees tooted their horn before they gave alms. Namely, it is an innate craving of the human heart to flaunt its own way and to get credit for its own individual distinctives and powers. And if you're one kind of person, you'll flaunt morality by going around nude in the parks. And if you're one kind of person, you'll flaunt your individuality and your power and your self-generated accomplishments by tooting horns before you give alms or by standing on the street corners and folding your hands before you pray. 
It's all the same depravity. It'll all be punished by the same hell. And we mustn't point our fingers too quickly, therefore, at the debauchery that might cause us. I, I get that feeling every time I look at the movie page in the Tribune, which I do about every day, and see the unbelievably flagrant praise of immorality. The good news is that Jonathan is having his first affair. The gospel. And when I read that, I burn. But I got to warn myself here, because Jesus burned when he looked at the Pharisees. And that may be right here. So let's be, be careful. Now the question, why? Does he call one works and the other fruit? If you had asked me that question until recently, I would have said, the reason is because fruit implies effortlessness. And God's will is that we produce love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control, effortlessly, like fruit on a tree. But as I thought about that day before yesterday, it occurred to me, you know, these works of the flesh are pretty effortless too. It doesn't take any more effort for a natural man to produce anger than it does for a spiritual man to produce peace. Does it? You don't work at being angry, do you? You don't work to have envy. It doesn't take any effort at all to feel envy. For example, anger. You cross a natural man in his way... Anger will burst out of him like blood out of a wound. He doesn't work at it at all. Spontaneity personified. Envy. No one works to be envious. It just blisters up like old paint under zip strips. It's just there. You don't work at it at all. So I doubt that the reason Paul called this list of vices works is because you have to Work at them. You know? If you're ruled by the flesh, you can relax and you'll produce every one of them. Then I tried something else, which didn't work either. But it got me close, I think. I don't think it would be accurate to say that these vices are called works because they are done to earn wages. That's a good definition of works. When you, do, when you do morality in order to earn from God, you're committing works. That's evil. I, I don't think most people, when they are given to strife and jealousy and anger, are thinking that I'm going to earn something by doing this. I'm going to win some approval from man or God. It's just, it's just there. It just comes out. But... Let's be careful here because I think we're real close to the answer of why Paul calls these works and doesn't call the, the fruit of the Spirit works. Could it be this? Yes, spontaneous reactions of strife and jealousy and anger and envy are not in themselves performed to earn anything, but are they not the emotional attempts to settle accounts when we didn't get what we thought we earned? For example, um, envy. When you have envy, you're not aiming to merit anything, 
But are you not letting bubble up a heart that is offended because it isn't getting what it thought it merited? Somebody else is getting it. Or take jealousy, for example. Jealousy is not calculated to earn any pay. I don't think, whenever you felt jealousy, you're not thinking, I'm going to earn some pay with this. But jealousy is the product of a heart that expected pay that went to somebody else. You're going to settle accounts now emotionally with jealousy. In other words, the kind of heart called flesh here, the kind of heart that produces these vices is a heart that considers itself a creditor and everybody else is my debtor. They owe me. God owes me. Nature owes me. Get rid of this heat, for goodness sakes. You owe me. And if you don't pay your dues, I'm going to get angry at you. Or jealous. Or envious. In other words, all these vices are the, the, the settling of emotional accounts when my worthy heart hasn't been paid. That's why they're called works. Because the whole mentality of the flesh is one of merit, pay, and reaction for no pay. It's very fitting, therefore, that, should, that Paul should call these emotional outbursts of a heart like that works of the flesh. But let's shift out of that mess for a minute and look at the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, what a different mentality here. That clean breath of fresh air starts blowing through. I wish I could produce a little dramatic effect right now. Right through the congregation. That's different. That's better. Here's what it is. Here's the mind that produces the fruit of the Spirit. People depending on grace. The mind of faith depending on grace. People who bear the fruit of the Spirit know that they are worthy of condemnation. They know that if they're going to deal with God or man in terms of pay, they're going to get paid wrath. And so, you know what they've done? What we've done? We quit relying on self and turn to mercy. We've thrown ourselves on the mercy of the court. And the judge has become a father and said not guilty. And we breathed easy. And there's a new mentality, a totally free new mentality that doesn't expect payment, satisfaction for my every desire. And therefore, when it receives satisfactions, chalks them up as mercy to be praised rather than feeling presumptuous, that is about time I got some relief from this heat. Any satisfaction will be a free gift of grace for the person who's producing the fruit of the Spirit. They bank on the mercy of God, they entrust themselves to His Spirit, and out of that mentality doesn't come anything that would be appropriately called work, but only rich, luscious, drippy, Peaches. I almost said Georgia peaches, but they all got wiped out. California peaches. 
just bite into them and it feeds you. I often thought when I pray, Lord, make me the kind of person who has fruit that feeds others. They went around me, they just feel like they've taken a bite into some cold, crisp apple with five points at the bottom. Therefore, I conclude that even the names Paul has given to these lists of vices and virtues, even those names are intended to keep us from legalizing these things and are intended to get at us and transform us. And that leads us to one last observation we can make from verse 24. In verse 24, Paul assumes that the people who are doing the fruit of the Spirit have experienced a battle. There's been a battle that's been fought somewhere deep down in the recesses of the soul, and it's been won. And I want to try to picture this battle for you with a little story. Wake up, kids, okay? This you'll understand. I read the battle of uh, the the, uh, Tower of Geburah with my kids on vacation, and uh, that's probably why I'm I'm thinking in terms of stories. Now picture your flesh as a dragon. And it lives in some deep cave of your soul. And one day you hear the gospel. And this happened to every believer in here. And if it hasn't happened to you, it can happen right now. So listen carefully. The gospel comes to you and in the gospel Jesus Christ approaches. This is what he does today. He approaches as a sovereign, as a king, and he says, I will take possession of you. I will make myself the king of your life and possess every cave in your soul. Will you bow, surrender, and yield to my sovereignty and acknowledge me and swear fealty to me? And you feel squirmy for a minute. And he says, and I will kill that dragon in the cave. You take a deep breath and say, but that's me. That's me in there. And he says, and you will live again. And I will take the place of that dragon. And I will put my affections and my heart and my mind where that dragon was. And you say, what must I do? And he says, Trust me and do what I say. We cannot be defeated if you follow me. Trust me, do what I say. And overcome with the beauty and the power of this great sovereign king, you bow. You surrender your life. You say, you possess. Take me. I am yours. I swear loyalty and faith. And as you rise, he puts this big sword in your hand. And he says, come with me. And you walk to the mouth of the cave. And at the mouth of the cave, he says, go in and slay the dragon. And you look up at him in disbelief and say, I can't. I can't, I can't go in there without you. And Jesus smiles, real big smile. You learn fast. That's right. Here's lesson number one. Don't you ever think, never forget, 
I don't ever tell my people to do something that I want them to do alone. Never. Oh, how we distort the New Testament by thinking that way. So you enter together. And a great battle ensues. And it's dark and there's flashing and movement. And you feel his hand on your hand guiding the sword. And soon that dragon is limp on the floor. And you say, is it dead? That is a big theological question. Is it dead, Jesus? And here's the answer, I think. Jesus says, I have come to you to give you life. New life. You received it when you yielded to me as your sovereign. And I took possession of the field of your soul. And you swore faith and loyalty to me. And now with my sword and my hand, you have slain the dragon. It is failed. It is a mortal wound. It will bleed to death. It is certain. But it's not yet dead. Therefore, you must treat it as dead. And when we walk out, you must build a, a pile of stones, very heavy stones in the front of this cave and never open it again for the prince of darkness will cause earthquakes in your soul to bring these stones down and there are final death convulsions that that dragon can have that can do you great harm reckon it dead build its tomb and the secret of your success is this have absolute confidence For I will never leave you nor forsake you. The sword will always win when you keep your hand in my hand. Your life is absolutely secure. His doom is absolutely sure. Walk in the joy of my powerful victorious spirit. Now, I think that's the meaning of verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Christ has taken away that threat. He has taken possession of our soul. The old self has been given a mortal wound. It will die. And it has been stripped of its power to have dominion over you. The Christian life is now a life of reckoning it dead by piling stones on its tomb and constantly yielding to the power of a new force in your life. Jesus Christ the mighty. And you cannot lose. And therefore I hope you see the Grand Canyon difference between American morality and the teaching of the New Testament. It's this in a summary sentence. The difference between Christian life and popular American morality is that Christians will not take one step Unless the hand of Christ is on the hand that wields the sword of righteousness. I'll say it again because it's the clue, the key to being a distinct people and a God-honoring family. Christians will not take one step until they feel the hand of Christ on your hand 
in wielding the sword of righteousness. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are in need of repentance, and we pause now before we approach the table of our Lord Jesus to confess our sins to you. Would you grant that as we pray now, we will be searched and known and cleansed. 